7.33. Here are the latest numbers for the local outbreak. Uh, 602 confirmed COVID-19 infections. 25 of them are in Seoul, which considering we have the biggest population in this city, it's a relatively small proportion. Of course, that situation can change and that doesn't mean we shouldn't be cautious. Uh, We also have more than 8,000 people being checked and in quarantine conditions. 949 of them are in Seoul. So um, it's a fluid situation, like with the political impact, and it does require everybody to really be extra cautious over the coming days to try to uh, ensure that we don't see an exponential explosion from here. Professor Angela Rasmussen is a virologist at Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health and joins us on the line. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. First of all, how do you view South Korea's outbreak at this point with the numbers that have alarmingly risen already over the last few days? It's certainly alarming, um, but one thing to keep in mind is that we are probably underestimating the number of cases of SARS-CoV-2 COVID-19 infection around the world. Um, In addition to the cases in South Korea, we've seen cases skyrocket in Italy, um, in Iran, and we're starting to see cases in other countries as well. Um, the good news is that we may be missing a lot of these cases because they're relatively mild and people don't necessarily recognize that they have a coronavirus infection. They have, uh, they have symptoms similar to the common cold. So that's somewhat reassuring. Right. Um, so there's been great vigilance here, which maybe has in- increased the number, but still, even factoring that in, Singapore has been praised for its vigilance, and it had a relatively high number of infections early on, but we now have eclipsed what's going on there. And it seems to kind of show that no matter what the government does, if you have a group of people in the context, for example, of this religious group in Daegu, who ignore that advice, um, allegedly, there's not much you can really do about that, is there? That's that's very true. And what we've seen also is that when the government intervenes in these situations after the virus is already out and spreading, uh, there's also not that much that can be done. Um, the large-scale quarantines in China have not worked. Um, it's debatable whether they've actually slowed the global spread of the virus um, or if there was already virus circulating around the world. So it's a tricky situation. Um, What it comes down to is that people really do need to be engaged uh, with the public health authorities and follow those recommendations. What's your view of China's outbreak for now? It's well into the tens of thousands. I mean, it's nearly 80,000 officially, but it could potentially be much higher than that, even on the basis of what you said before about some infections perhaps not being recorded. Um, do you think we are close to a slowdown there, though, that would see the tail end of this outbreak within that country? You know, at this, at this time, it's really difficult to say, um, partly because of the underreporting issue, partly because uh, in China they have changed the diagnostic criteria for COVID-19 um, multiple times, which makes it very difficult to count confirmed cases versus suspected cases versus reported cases of people who may not be coming into the hospital. Um, It's really hard to tell also because the incubation period, um, there have been 
sort of wildly different reports of what that actually is. Some people have said two weeks. Now there are suggestions that it might be longer. I mean, we actually don't know very much either about the course of the disease itself, how long a person is sick for uh, before they either recover or before they need medical intervention. So those are all moving targets, essentially. And I think over the next few weeks, we're going to find out a lot more information about not only how the outbreak is uh, proceeding in China, but also how it's going to be proceeding around the world. There are cases of xenophobia. There are cases of discrimination, of basic caution about what other people are doing in society. And I guess we all need to make our own judgments as to what's appropriate in that respect. But there are also continued stories about China itself, how this virus spread. For example, um, a couple of days ago, the New York Post reported, don't buy China's story. The coronavirus may have leaked from a lab. Uh, how helpful are, are these kinds of investigations that we're seeing around the world right now? They are absolutely not helpful. Um, and specifically, the New York Post story that you're referring to uh, gets me somewhat fired up because the genomic analysis of the virus, that is the best science we have right now fundamentally. Um, we, we've been, we've been uh, able to access the sequence data from this virus from the early parts of the outbreak. And what we know from studying the virus and looking at its evolution is that it almost certainly did not emerge from a lab. Um, it's not possible to rule that out completely, but it's highly unlikely. Um, it's the vast um, majority of analyses on this have supported the idea that this was a naturally occurring virus that uh, spilled over into the human population from either a bat or another species that was infected with it. Let's um, finish uh, or move towards the end of uh, our part of this uh, discussion by talking a little bit about the infection itself and maybe reassure ourselves because some of the fear and panic implies that the survival rate is somewhere at or below 2% rather than the fatality rate. Um, and, and and I think it is important to tell ourselves if we are otherwise not immune compromised, that there is a chance we would become infected and, and not necessarily feel all that bad. What, what's your advice to people on that if they were to, to fear that they had contracted COVID-19? Yeah, my advice on that is that the data that we have so far suggests that at least 80% of the people who have been infected within China, and this was a large study of over 40,000 patients, uh, had very mild symptoms, if any symptoms at all. If we assume that we're missing a lot of cases because people are not that sick and so they're not presenting to their doctor or clinic uh, because they need care, then that number actually will increase, and that means that the case fatality rate and the ratio of, uh, of patients with severe disease will decrease. So to, to people who have minor cold symptoms, um, stuffy nose, they're sneezing, coughing, but not having significant problems with breathing, uh, not, have, not having a high fever, um, not feeling that they would need to go to the doctor, I recommend that those people stay home, uh, don't interact with other people, practice good hand hygiene, um, be considerate, and if you have to sneeze or cough, do it into your sleeve or right. into a mask, um, and take the common sense precautions that you would take to prevent the cold or a flu. Because well, I think in the majority of people, that's what this presents as. We've got a message from Ewald Brunner saying it seems that people with underlying issues usually succumb to COVID-19. I'd like to just extend that question because a lot of people would have 
diabetes, let's say, or possibly some cardiovascular disease. I mean, all the things that come with age um, in, in many people above the age of 50 or 60, let's say, and some people who are younger. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to succumb to COVID-19, though, presumably. No, it doesn't. It means that their risk is higher, um, but it doesn't. it's not a death sentence to have an underlying precondition. Um, many people have asthma, many people have heart disease, many people have diabetes, many people have survived COVID-19 with those underlying comorbidities. We just see a higher rate of severe disease in people with those comorbidities, and we don't completely understand the basis for that, but it was similar with MERS coronavirus and SARS as well. Thank you very much, Professor Rasmussen. Really good to have you on the line, first of all, today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.